Well, we are going to continue our study of Revelation this morning and move through the text that we have next in this book. We covered the, the, the superscript last Sunday. We looked at verses 1 to 3, and we looked at how John the Apostle introduced uh, this important book. And now we are going to move to the next section And we'll begin in verse 4. It really carries down to verse 8, but we will only cover verses 4, 5, and 6 this morning. This is what the Apostle John writes. He says this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we go through this text, you can immediately see that it is packed with a lot of theology. There is a great deal of truth here that needs to be expounded. And as in all of these these books, the introductions are so important because they contain the keys to help you understand where the book itself is headed. And so we will take time going through these three verses to unpack as much as we can. And as we look at this particular text from verses 4 to 6 this morning, we're going to organize our thoughts around these three ideas. First of all, we're going to see in the first part of verse 4, the needy addressed. The needy addressed. And then in the second half of verse 4 to the first half of verse 5, we'll see the provision that is supplied, the provision supplied. And then the third segment of this text is going to be the provider exalted, the second half of verse 5 and all of verse 6. Now, before we get into that, it's important to note structurally that these verses comprise what we call the book's salutation and its opening doxology. There are two literary portions here, a a salutation and a doxology. And it's interesting to note that the Apostle John, as he begins this book with a unique superscript in which he identifies the genre as prophecies. This genre is is prophecy. It speaks of that which must take place. It speaks of those things that are near. So it is prophetic in nature. And yet, what is interesting here is that John immediately resorts to the practice of a typical Greco-Roman letter of including now a salutation. Verses 4 and 5 contain this salutation And it's made up of the the regular ingredients that you would find in any Greco-Roman letter at the time. There's an identification of the writer. There's an identification of the recipients to receive the writing. And and then there is an expression of, of, of a greeting or of a wish. And what's interesting to note in that style is that actually the book of Revelation is, is much more of a letter than you may have realized. 
It is a letter that is written at once to the seven churches individually, but at the same time to the seven churches collectively. It follows the pattern of a Greek letter. In fact, when you turn to the very end of this book, Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, it ends with a typical benediction, an ending. Verse 21 of chapter 22 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. In fact, when you just look at the salutation and the ending, it sounds very Pauline. It sounds as if this was Paul writing or or Peter writing because it has that kind of structure to it. And so in that sense, we could call the book of Revelation, instead of using that title based off the very first word of the book, we could call this, this book Asians, just like Galatians, because you know Galatians was the name of a Roman province. And so we call that letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, we call it Galatians. It was a region, there were multiple churches there, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, multiple churches there. And so Paul writes to all of them in that province and just calls it Galatians. And the book of Revelation, we could, in a sense, just call Asians. Of course, it's written to the Roman province of Asia, which is in western Turkey. We'll look at a map in just a moment. Uh, But it's written to those churches following much of the same style in terms of structure that you find at the beginning and at the end. Now, let's get into this text then and look, first of all, at those who are addressed, the needy addressed, and that is found in the first half of verse 4, where John writes this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, he identifies himself here with his name, very, a very simple identification. He has already called himself back in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, you see that he's already described himself as one of Jesus' slaves, as a slave of, of Jesus Christ. But when he addresses these, these churches in Asia Minor, these Asian churches, he doesn't add anything more to his name. And the reason for that undoubtedly is is that they didn't need anything more. These churches recognized who this John was. He was beloved by them. He was that apostolic shepherd to these churches. And so even just the name John was, was dear to them. What we know from church history is that John spent much of his life in Jerusalem to begin with, But then later on in the 60s AD, as the Jews began to revolt against the rule of the Romans, John transferred his residence to Ephesus there in in Asia, in the Roman province of Asia, or Asia Minor as it's called sometimes, and lived there from about AD 68 or so, all the way to the end of his life, around AD 98. So about the last three decades, the last third of his life, is actually spent in that area doing ministry, ministering to the churches, sending out missionaries, and so on and so forth. Now, he writes this letter to a group of churches, seven of them, that are located in Asia. And it immediately raises the question, why would John have, have singled out these seven churches 
to receive a letter, a, a writing of such significance, something that deals with the end of this world? Why did he address it to just seven churches? We know that there were other Asian churches. There was a church in Colossae, which is about 10 miles away from Laodicea. There was a church in Hierapolis, which was about seven miles away from Laodicea. We also know that there was a church in Troas, which was on the coast, a little to the northwest of Pergamum. That was part of Asia. Why did John, in writing this letter, just focus on these seven churches? Some respond and say, well, seven is just a symbolic number that indicates completion. And so really, we're not to make too much of this at all and instead see this as a reference to the universal church. That John, right from the start, is speaking symbolically. And so in the place of seven, you read perfect or complete. And the place of churches, you just read church. It is a book, so it is argued, that is written to the universal church. But it is best to see instead that these were seven actual churches, real churches, and and these were churches that John writes to because they had been a special emphasis or focus of his ministry. There's a lot that we don't know. There's very much we don't know about those final three decades of John's life. But the best uh, supposition to make here, based on the evidence, is that John himself had been traveling through Asia Minor, and these seven churches were churches that by this time, by around 96 AD, they were churches that occupied John's special attention. And that makes sense, because when you look at the ancient travel system there, there was a road that actually, a circular road that connected all of these seven churches. And so, in that sense, it would have been easy for John to either send his own emissaries on different routes to visit these churches, or for he himself to go and visit these seven churches. And as one commentator has noticed, these seven churches really are important in that they connect one with the most populous, wealthy, and influential part of the province. It followed those seven churches. And so, John writes to them, and what we can tell from this book, particularly chapters 2 and 3, when we get into the individual churches themselves and what is described there, we find that these churches had significant needs. They had significant needs. John had been removed from their midst, not by any choice of his own. He had been exiled, as we're going to see in verse 9, exiled to an island off the coast called Patmos. And having been removed from their presence, he now lacked the ability to interact personally face-to-face with these churches. His concern was great, and he was well aware of their great needs. Each of the churches, as we get into chapters 2 and 3, evidenced struggle in some way. Some of it was due to their own 
their, their own fault. And in other cases, the struggle was due to the pressures being placed upon them. But these seven churches faced issues related to complacency, a, a lack of love for Christ, a, a lack of love for doctrine, a lack of love for holiness or compromise. Some of these churches were seeking to synthesize or integrate the worldview of, of those around them into their own churches. And then several of these churches, two of them in particular, were facing severe persecution. All of them had great need. They, they had the need of a word from God, which is referred to even in verse 2, that would be both specific to their situation, and that is what we find in chapters 2 and 3, but also provide them with truth that would relate to all of them universally all at once. And that's what we find in chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22. This was the need. These churches, dear to to John, needed a word of the Lord. Now we look at the provision that is supplied. It begins in the second or really in the first half still of verse 4, the Apostle John writes, grace to you and peace. This is the summary of all that is going to be discussed, really boiled down to two words, grace and peace. Now, in other letters in the New Testament, we find that this same wish is found there as well. We see that the New Testament writers, whether that's Paul or whether that's Peter, they take this standard wish formula that would be at the beginning of a Greek letter and they fill it with theology. For them, it's not just some kind of dear John structure. They fill this with theology. And the two terms that they mention here consistently, in fact, in all of Paul's letters you find grace and peace, with the exception of the pastorals, where he also adds mercy. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And then in Peter's letters as well, grace and peace, grace and peace. These two terms, when you boil down the essential experience of all true believers, as well as the greatest need of all true believers, it comes down to these two terms. And as we get into the The letters to the seven churches, for example, we're going to see that what is delivered to them, the the particular instructions, will all revolve around grace and peace. Grace, the enablement, and peace, the result of of what is good. In fact, when we look at these, these terms more specifically, we can define them this way. Grace is, quote, the love of God spontaneous, beautiful, and unearned at work in Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinful men. That's grace. And even for those who are saved, this love of God that is spontaneous, beautiful, and unearned is still needed. We are still, as those who are saved, very much in need of grace day after day after day. That beautiful and unearned love of God. But John also desires for them peace. And these two terms come in a particular order. Grace comes first and then peace. And we can define peace in this way. 
quote, it is the effect of the reception of grace, the soul health, which comes when grace makes one's heart right with God and dispels all fear. And if you think of the churches there in Asia that were facing the challenges they did, the tremendous opposition from their cultures, they needed this peace. Some of them were even being put to death, as we will read, especially one we we hear of an early martyr named Antipas, and the churches, in light of that, needed peace. And that is the provision that is promised to them through this book. Grace, by the way, is it's interesting. These two terms, grace and peace, reflect both the, the combination of, of the Jewish world and the Gentile world. When the Greeks would greet each other, they would use karain, greetings. And that word karain comes or that from that word comes our word charis, or grace. And the word peace is obviously from the Hebrew word shalom. And so you see in this greeting, you see both the Gentile greeting and the Hebrew greeting filled with rich theological content and offered to those who would read and hear and keep this book. But as we continue as, and, and look at this provision that is supplied, what is important to see here is also the source of it. Very important here. And this is where the theology starts getting deep. You'll notice in verses 4 and 5, the repetition of this preposition from, repeated three times, from him and, and from the seven spirits, and from Jesus Christ, John identifies that this grace and peace comes from a source that is threefold in nature. Let's look at each one of them. First of all, he says it comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. And when we look at that title, that designation, we see here that it is a reference to God the Father and his Glorious eternality and immutability. In this particular source, John emphasizes that grace and peace comes from one who is eternal and one who is unchanging. And that's important. Now, fascinating, it's fascinating to note with this title is that it's going to be used a little bit later on for Jesus himself. If you look down at 1 verse 8, it's Jesus who actually uses this term. But it's going to be used two other terms after this, or three other times after this, in 4 verse 8, 11 verse 17, and 16 verse 5, always to describe the Father. It is a standard description of the Father. But Even knowing that, there's something very fascinating that we don't see in the English that is is present in the original. If you look at the original, you'd find a couple of very significant grammatical problems. It doesn't fit the norm. And in fact, it, it looks incorrect. But what is important to realize here is that this is no unintentional blunder. Instead, the grammar of this verse is what it is because John refuses to change, to make the language flow, refuses to change 
the endings and the structure of the verbs in order to fit the overall grammar to show that God himself is majestic and unchangeable. In the Greek language, depending on how you use words, when you use verbs, participles, nouns, you always have to have the right form and endings on them based on placement in the sentence and its function. And so you can mix up all the word order in sentences and you'll always be able to make sense of it in the Greek because of how the words look. But John doesn't do that here. He doesn't change the structure, the wording, or the ending of the words in order to make it flow grammatically in this sentence following from that preposition from. He leaves it as a very unique statement. And again, that is to emphasize God's unchangeableness. John does not want to mess with the name. Keep that in mind. Also, what's interesting here is that to describe the future, John doesn't say the one who is, emphasizing that eternality in our moment, and the one who was, emphasizing his eternality in our past, but he says he is the one to come. He doesn't say he's the one who will be. He could have said that. But instead, to emphasize the futuristic element of this book, he changes the verbs. That he does change to emphasize the coming day of the Lord. That God in his eternality is always the same, but in terms of space and time, As Revelation will go on to describe, we will see a particular manifestation of God in this world. He is the coming one. Now, when we look back at this, this title for God the Father, we see that it is an allusion back to Exodus. If you look back at Exodus 3, verses 13 to 14, you see the revelation of Yahweh to Moses at the burning bush. And and this is what Moses records in verses 13 and, and 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here you have the name Yahweh. The Hebrew tetragrammaton in Hebrew, four consonants that make up that verb I am, emphasizing that eternality that unchangingness of God. It's not that he ever becomes something else. He always is. And that is the name that John describes here as being the source of this grace and peace. In response, one commentator writes, such a reminder would be especially appropriate at a time when the church stood under the shadow of impending persecution. 
and uncertain future calls for one who, by virtue of his external existence, exercises sovereign control over the course of history. The needy needed something that was like this. They needed grace and mercy from one who is this, eternal and unchanging. The second name that is used here, the second title, is is one that is also bewildering. We read it here in in the end of verse 4. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, as we're going to see as we work this out, this is a reference to God the Spirit. And particularly, this reference to the seven spirits who are before his throne, it is a reference to the Spirit's omniscience and his efficacious activity as the sent one. The title here is going to be used again in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6. So it's not unique just to this particular text, but it does create a lot of bewilderment. What are the seven spirits? Why are there seven? Now, some believe this refers to angels. In fact, if you would look at Jewish apocalyptic literature, Jewish apocalyptic literature identifies seven such archangels. Those, there are commentators who believe that John is trying to make a reference to these archangels, some kind of special heavenly, heavenly court. But the problem here is that as we look at the book of Revelation, wherever John refers to holy angels, he never uses the term spirit. He uses the term angelos, not pneuma or pneumatos. He doesn't use the word for spirit. He uses the word angelos to refer to angels. Never spirits to refer to holy angels. And that also adds the question here, why would John place archangels or some heavenly court of spirit created, or created spirit beings between, as we see in this, in this salutation, between God the Father and God the Son? Why would he do that? It is better instead to see this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the question is, well, how do you get that? Well, it's actually another Old Testament illusion. One of the things we see in the book of Revelation is that it is filled with echoes and allusions to the Old Testament. The name, him who is and who was, is an allusion back to Exodus 3, 13 and 14. And this title here is an allusion back to the Old Testament as well, particularly Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. We won't go through all of that, but what's interesting to note there is that Zechariah receives a vision there, and you have a correspondence that is made in Zechariah 4 between seven lamps with seven spouts, seven and the Holy Spirit, and the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the world. 
Again, we can't go through and exposit Zechariah 4. It is a challenging text, but, but theologians realize that what John sees there is a vision of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord that is described in this particular way. And what John the Apostle does is go back to Zechariah and pick up that terminology and use it here to describe the Holy Spirit. Again, taking, the- taking Zechariah's uh, theology and bringing it in here to describe the Holy Spirit particularly emphasizing the omniscience of the Spirit and His role as the one who's sent by the Father. We continue and we see another, a third, the final of the threefold source, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and as we'll see in in this description, He is emphasized here as as to His glorious work as Redeemer and Ruler. So you have, first of all, God the Father, whose eternality and immutability is put on display. And then you have the Spirit, whose omniscience and efficacious role is put on display. And then you have God the Son, Jesus, who is described according to His work as Redeemer and Ruler. Now, you should probably think, you, or if you're not thinking already, you should probably ask, why does John leave the Son to the position of third place in this description? Now, it's not that the persons of the Godhead have any kind of distinction in placement. They are all equally one, but in terms of the Trinitarian language of the New Testament, it's typically God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why then is Jesus left to third here in this order? And the answer is is that John wants to spend his time describing who this Jesus is and describe to him a special doxology that closes this particular section. He is described, first of all, as the faithful witness Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And that is a reference to two things in particular. First of all, it is a reference to His ministry on earth, His first advent. And if you would look, for example, through the Gospel of John in particular, John over and over and over emphasizes that Jesus gave faithful and true testimony of the Father. That was Jesus's the, the, the assessment of Jesus' ministry. You could look, for example, at John 18, verse 37, where Pilate asks him this question, so you are a king, and Jesus answers and says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. That was Jesus' role as, as the deliverer of the truth of, of God. But we also see this emphasis on faithful witness even here in this very book. Because as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ is the agent of the revelation that is given to John. God the Father has given Jesus the Son revelation to show His bondservants And this emphasis here is on the fact that Jesus always consistently reveals that which is 
true. He's also called the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. This emphasizes his decisive defeat over death on behalf of his redeemed. Notice that he is the firstborn of the dead, assuming that there are others who, are fo- who will follow, and those others are those that we will see in, in, in verses uh, 5 and 6, those who have been purchased by his death. He defeated death for the sake of those who came after him. Colossians 1.18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And then he is called the ruler of the kings of the earth. This refers to his exaltation after his, his atonement for sin, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father and also to his coming reign when he will bring his status to this world and implement a kingdom that has never before been known. Now this threefold description of Jesus Christ echoes emphases from the Old Testament as well. Again, we won't go into all of this, but each one of these titles, the one of the Father, the one of the Spirit, and now of Jesus Christ, each one of these titles are drawn from very rich theology from the Old Testament. That of the Father drawn from Exodus 3, that uh, of the Spirit drawn from Zechariah 4, and now this of the Son, these three descriptions as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and of the ruler of the kings of the earth, all come from Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a psalm of, of Ethan, the Ezraite, as he exposits under the superintendence of the Spirit, he exposits the Davidic covenant. If you go back and read uh, Psalm 89, it's this psalm that is dedicated to exalting God for this covenant that he made with David. And we all recognize that Jesus is that son of David who would fulfill all of those promises that were made to David. And just a few examples here. Psalm 89 verse 37 calls the son of David a faithful witness. That's exactly what we see here in verse 5. Psalm 89 verse 27 here, Yahweh says, I will make him my firstborn. And, and that is what we see here as well. Verse 5, firstborn of the dead. And then Psalm 89 verse 27 says, Yahweh says, he will also make him the highest of the kings of the earth. And that is how John describes him as being, verse 5, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Moved by the Spirit to describe Jesus Christ in this way, John is emphasizing here the importance of the Davidic covenant, that it is a covenant that still is in effect. It is a covenant that has Jesus Christ as its center. He is the Messiah, and He is the one who is coming to bring all of God's irrevocable promises made to David. He is coming to bring them to pass. And this rule of the Messiah, as John will say and has already already mentioned, this rule is near. 
This was the provision for the needs of the churches. Ultimately, it was none other than the triune God and all of the believers' challenges that they face at this time. Those to whom John writes, all of those challenges will be met in the grace and peace that comes from this threefold source. From the Father who is eternal and unchanging. From the Spirit who is, who is omniscient and effective in all that He does. And in the Son who is the Redeemer and the Ruler. Now that is, that is the source for the grace and peace. And that is exactly what these seven churches needed. Now we have a few moments to get through at least part of the doxology, the first doxology that is issued in this book, and there will be several of them. And it's found in the second part of verse 5 and into verse 6. We'll just start into this and pick it up again next time when we come back for the next portion here. But notice how John then breaks out into exaltation. As I said, he left Jesus to the third part of this list so that he could provide greater definition of who he is, giving that threefold description, and then he leaves him to last so that John could particularly focus on him as an object of John's praise. He says this, as the provider is exalted. He says this, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Upon describing Jesus Christ, John cannot help but break out into doxology. And I want to just cover the, the very first description as, that's, that makes up this doxology here because it's so powerful. Notice how John exalts Jesus Christ. He says, to Him who loves us. Now what's fascinating to know here is that Jesus Christ is often described as loving us in the rest of the New Testament, but in those other instances, in every other instance, the, the description of that love is put within the context of the cross. And so it's treated as a historical reality. For example, Galatians 2.20, notice the language here. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. It's expressed in the past, and that obviously isn't intended to suggest that the love of Christ somehow has ended. But in all those other references where the love of Christ is emphasized, it is seen in that special perspective of that past historical work that, that makes all the difference in the rest of history. But here, John departs from it, and he expresses this love very uniquely in the present tense. He did not just love us on the cross. 
He did not just love us at a moment in history, but John breaks out into exaltation because he knows that Christ loves him in the present. That love has not ebbed and flowed. It is the same as ever. He loves us. And in fact, what's interesting to note here is that as he breaks into this doxology, all of a sudden now, the difference between John as an apostle, as a shepherd of these seven churches, and those seven churches as needy churches can create somewhat of a, of a difference. But here, the difference is erased. The apostle John resorts to putting himself together with them all under that pronoun, that plural pronoun, us. Who loves us? And as we're going to see as we continue our study next time, it's going to be seen in history and the release from our sins and also the making of us into a kingdom, priests to His God, and then this wonderful expression of glory and dominion that is wished upon Him forever and ever. But as we close, moving ahead quickly, just to the, to the end here, just a song, a hymn, a well-known hymn that helps us in some way recover some of the astonishment bewilderment, if you may, at at Jesus' love for us, especially in light of His work as Redeemer. It's the hymn by Philip Bliss, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's like these words are on John's tongue as he gets to this point in his writing. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. That is the thought that was on John's mind as he describes the source of this grace and peace and focuses his attention particularly on the person of Jesus Christ. Let's do the same in our own lives. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this particular text, we come initially with very, very acute awareness of our own needs. Acute awareness of all the challenges we face 
all the, the difficulties and hurdles in remaining faithful. But as we read this text and dig into it, those things start to fall by the way. And our awareness is drawn as it should be. To you, our blessed triune God, and in particular, the one who has manifest His glory, Jesus, your Son. Our thoughts are driven to Him and we look upon His glory. It's revealed in, on this page of Scripture and throughout this book of Revelation. And all of a sudden we find in that revelation of Jesus Christ the solution, the provision to our soul's needs. You have not left us alone. You have not left us without help, but you have given us yourself. And in that, we find our greatest satisfaction and joy. And we give you praise and glory. And as John himself says, to you be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.